Welcome to the Physician Negotiator Podcast, where no decision is left to chance. With your host, Doc of All Trades. Today on the show, I have Dr. Leif Daling, most famously known as the Physician on Fire. He is an anesthesiologist practicing in Minnesota and only after nine years has achieved financial independence with plans on retiring in 2019 at the ripe old age of 43. In 2016, he started his blog by the same name and has had tremendous success with almost a total of 4 million views and growing. He recently was nominated for Blog of the Year at FinCon for a Plutus Award, and his blog has been incredibly instrumental in educating thousands of physicians on how to manage their finances and has personally impacted not only my finances, but also my career. Leaf, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And I think we should just stop the podcast right there because that's going to be a difficult uh, introduction to live up to. Thank you for all the time. Oh, kind no. Of- <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think you deserve it. Um, I, you know, I know I've been following you now probably since close to the beginning and, and your your writing style and what you've said has, has gained such uh, amazing traction that many of my peers have come up to me and said, hey, have you ever heard of this guy, Physician on Fire? And uh, it's just incredible how much growth you've had. That's awesome. It hasn't really happened much to me. There, there are one or two people locally that, that did find me organically. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's really nice to hear. Um, uh, my pleasure. And again, congratulations for uh, getting nominated for uh, Blog of the Year. That's an amazing accomplishment in and of itself as well. That surprised me. I was hoping to be perhaps nominated in the uh, fire blog category. So to be uh, one of eight or 10 blogs in the overall category was a big surprise. And like you said, quite, quite an honor. Wow, uh, it was incredible. And, and you know, uh, I was at FinCon as you, as you were. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I thought the people were amazing. The community is amazing. And uh, it, it, I, it seems like you've been involved with FinCon for some time now. And uh, I think everybody kind of builds upon each other, and they really do a good job collaborating. Yeah, so many good people there, and, and we're all there to support each other and help each other learn and grow and help us reach a wider audience, which is really what we're trying to do is, is to help people out uh, that are not bloggers. So, yeah, and it's only my second year uh, at FinCon. I went uh, for the first time in 2017, but I feel like I've known these people for longer than that. You know, you, you spend a lot of time uh, emailing and commenting on each other's uh, blogs and maybe a meetup here or there outside of FinCon. So, yeah, that's kind of kind of my tribe outside of uh, uh, my my normal everyday persona is uh, the other bloggers and podcasters, etc. Well, you know, I was looking at your your stats on your blog, and you said you had fifteen thousand comments, and so I think that's enough comments to make a lot of friends. Yeah, and I bet uh, probably six, seven thousand of those are mine. It's a lot of typing. I, I can't believe how much uh, uh, I've hammered on this keyboard. I had to buy replacement stickers for the keys because half of them I couldn't read anymore. I had rubbed off the C M N L period comma. They're all gone. Wow, that's incredible. And <laughs> you know, it seems to me that you know the biggest thing that you've done that's incredible is is uh, your your consistency. Um, I I, uh, I think X Ray Vision mentioned on one of his posts that you're. Every single time he's gone to or found a new influential blogger, you always have comments on on their posts, and so that's pretty incredible that that you're able to you know cast such a broad net. Yeah, I try to help build community by uh, directing people to other good sites besides my own, and then I visit them myself, and uh, you know to see what I like and see what I think my readership might be interested in. So I I link out to ten different blog posts on the uh, Sunday Best every every Sunday, consistent for almost two years now. No, over two years. 
Wow. And you and, and you've never missed a Sunday. I have not. There have been that's Sundays a, where I wasn't around, but I can schedule those ahead of time. That's a, that's incredible. Okay. Well, uh, you know, the Physician Negotiator podcast, the whole premise is to help uh, physicians become better negotiators. And I think your strategy is probably one of the most powerful strategies. And that's when you achieve financial independence. And so, uh, you know, the FIRE movement has picked up some momentum and, and uh, people like Mr. Money Mustache have pointed out uh, and it seems to have gone viral. And uh, you were recently mentioned in the Wall Street Journal last week in an article entitled How to Thrive in Early Retirement. Uh, even though the article illustrated kind of two very different ways of retiring early, uh, you know, like winning the lottery or, you know, uh, making it, striking gold somehow. Yeah, selling uh, a business. It, there were several entrepreneurs in there who, you know, achieved financial independence overnight when they moved on from a, a successful business that they had started. Exactly. But I think, you know, the, the you know, actual knowledge of the FIRE movement um, is, a, is more of a sound strategy for, for uh, achieving uh, early retirement because it's achievable by almost anyone. So could you briefly explain what the, you know, the, the FI concept is the, or the financial independence concept? Sure. When, when we talk about it, uh, you know, in this context, financial independence means that you've got enough money or monthly cash flow to make work optional. You know, it's not the financial independence of no longer having your parents pay your cell phone plan or part of your rent. It means that you are completely independent, not only of any family help or that, you know, anybody else is supporting you, but uh, you don't even need your uh, employment income to live the lifestyle that you're living now and comfortable with. So that can happen one of two ways. As I mentioned, you can either build up a, a nice pile of money and that should be invested with an amount equal or greater to about 25 times of your anticipated expenses. And that's annual expenses. Another way to do it is to have monthly income cash flow that is stable and exceeds your monthly spending. Excellent. And, uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when did you start to practice? Uh, when you, when you did start practicing medicine after residency, um, you were in debt similar to other medical students who have, a. Uh, who have who, who leave graduate with some medical debt, um, and I guess the average is about two hundred thousand dollars today per medical student. Um, so, which which concept of FI did you employ early on in your uh, in your in your medical practice? Um, you know, I, I guess I started, and I of course didn't know anything about financial independence, but I did know a little bit about money back in in high school when I selected uh, the University of Minnesota. They had offered a full tuition scholarship, and I had a number of other scholarships uh, that actually more than covered uh, room and board. I did have a little family help too. And, uh, and I lived in the state. And so it would have been uh, cheap, even if I had had to pay full freight. I also stayed there at the U as we call it here for medical school. And I had a $5,000 scholarship to help with that. And so by the time I got out, I had about $60,000 in debt. And the average back in 2002 when I finished was about $100,000. So I, I kept it below, I guess, an, an average in, in three ways. Um, one was some family help that was set up like back in 1980 when my grandfather died and uh, interest rates were you know, 14, 15, 16%. So they set aside some money for the grandkids. And I think I had about $40,000 over six years. So that certainly helped. Uh, staying in state for uh, a public university for both undergrad and medical school and receiving scholarships to both. All of that set me up to have a, a below average debt load. So that was good. Well, that's like diametrically opposed to uh, another article in the Wall Street Journal talking about 
uh, the dentist that had over a million dollars worth of debt. Right. You can just borrow, borrow, borrow. And there, there will be somebody more than willing to loan you that money at the 6.8 or 8.4% that, you know, a lot of student loans have been in recent years, uh, far above the, you know, the typical interest rates on mortgage or even auto loans. So yeah, it's easy to rack up debt. I looked at ways to keep mine low. I lived in pretty dumpy apartments too. I mean, for college, it was fine. That's just kind of how everybody was living. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't want to come out with a six-figure debt, and uh, fortunately, I, I did not. And, and you know, I think a lot of uh, a lot of people don't realize that taking on massive debt is going to just impact them for the rest of their lives. And so, the guy that has a million-dollar debt, I doubt he'll ever retire. He's probably going to die with debt if if he doesn't get it forgiven somehow. Yeah, and there are programs to help you know uh, reduce or forgive that debt. But yeah, even if you do have a half million dollars in student loan debt. You know, you, you can pay it off, but it's got to be your focus. You know, you, you have to look at that before you start looking at your dream home and, uh, you know, all, all the things that you've, you've been thinking about that you would like to have when you make a, a really solid physician income. Um, put those off until you've you've been attacking your debt with, you know, six figures a year, which, which uh, should be possible in most specialties. And, uh, you know, I had a nice conversation with uh, Dr. Fa- or Corey Fawcett about that. And, uh, you know, he, he's talking about any kid who comes out with student debt in this day and age, irregardless, uh, out of medical school, irregardless of how much they make, tackling debt with our high income should be very easy if you just don't uh, let your finances get out of control. Yeah, so, make it a top priority and, and you can you know, go at it. A lot of people treat it more like a mortgage, 25-year repayment plan. And that's, you know, that, that will that will work, but it will take 25 years. And you may assume that you're going to be happy in your career for 25 years, but 10, 15 years in, you might not be as enthused as you were in your first and second year. I mean, that's very, very typical. Well, I, I just read some of the latest data from Merritt Hawkins and Comp Health and the doctor's company, and they all had similar data. And they all said that up to 70% or 80% of physicians are burnt out right now. It's a massive number. Yeah, and similar and, number to, you know, that ask, would you recommend this to your kids or a good friend or a family member? And about the same number say no, which is it's pretty sad, but it's a reflection of uh, the state of affairs in medicine right now. Exactly. Um, so, you know, there's the concept. So you, you were fortunate not to have tremendous debt. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, once you graduate, you have an opportunity to make quite a bit of money. And uh, you mentioned in one of your posts that you were offered and accepted a $100,000 signing bonus during your first job. Um, how did that situation end up for you? Well, um, and it wasn't quite my first job. It was my second, quote unquote, permanent job. Uh, okay. My first one was a place where I had done locums and that transitioned into a full-time job for about four or five years. And then the hospital went bankrupt. So we were kind of looking on short notice and I saw this hundred thousand dollars dangling out there uh, to help open a new hospital, which was kind of a fun thing to do, kind of a unique opportunity. Uh, and we took it and we were of the uh, mind that, wow, this health system has money to spend. They're opening a hospital. This is a growing community. This is going to be great. What we didn't factor in as much as I should have is you know, the location and, and distance from family and friends. So we ended up staying for two years and the $100,000 signing bonus had a stipulation that you needed to stay for five to hang on to that. So really what it was, 
was a $100,000 loan that was forgiven over five years. And by leaving after two, I did pay uh, three-fifths of it back uh, with interest. So I had to write a check for $64,000 some odd dollars, I believe. Well, and you know, I think uh, that that's a very good learning lesson in that, you know, if somebody dangles a lot of money in front of you, especially, you know, as a clinician or, or, as, a, or as an anesthesiologist, I guess, usually there's something there's a reason why they need to offer you a hundred thousand dollars. That's a good point. It's about supply and demand, but you know, in hindsight, it would have made sense to forego the signing bonus and ask for another 20 or $25,000 in salary, which would might've been a reasonable tactic. They might've taken me up on that. I guess it would have broken even more or less, but uh, then I wouldn't have those, you know, quote unquote, golden handcuffs or, you know, some people might take that hundred grand and spend it, put it all towards the down payment on a home in that town. And then when they want to leave, they really can't come up with that 60 grand, you know, depending on how they've been living. So, uh, you know, for me, it was fortunate. I was already in a pretty good financial position when I took that job. So, um, I paid off what was left of my student loans. I wasn't spending even half of the salary I made. So paying that money back was not a hardship for me, but it would be for some some people. And as you mentioned, uh, it was on a guest post of yours where, you know, the, probably the best strategy for dealing with a with a uh, signing bonus would be to apply it towards your debt or certainly something towards uh, where you're not going to lose the money, like you said, with a house and or you're going to be tied to to that to that job or that location. You, know, you certainly don't want to put it into a, a depreciating asset, you know, like the you know Dodge Viper that you've always wanted or <laughs> something. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, if you know there's a chance you might have to pay that back, you know, put it somewhere safe or have a plan to have that money ready. Basically, kind of the whole emergency fund concept, right? You could have a you know sixty thousand dollar, eighty thousand dollar, you know, emergency of sorts, and you need to be able to come up with that money. So I did have that in the back of my mind. Exactly. And uh, I was talking to uh, a couple of people about signing bonuses. And uh, according to the data, like a signing bonus for today's uh, graduating physicians and almost every specialty are offered signing bonuses now. Whereas before it was, you know, I would say probably from 2011 to 2014, it was really, uh, it was more in common. And so now, you know, all these young graduate graduates have this opportunity to get this money and then negotiate for even more if they need it. Um, but they need to use it wisely. And I think that's the, the, the main message that you teach us. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, uh, I mean, I, th- I, th- I don't think a down payment on its home is a, a terrible idea, but it all, all depends. Like I say, as long as you have the uh, ability to pay that back because they almost always come with some stipulation. I received a, a signing bonus at my current job, which is the one I took uh, which is closer to family and friends. It's here in Minnesota. Um, so when I came here, uh, it was a much smaller signing bonus, and I think I had to stay two or three years to keep it. But you always have to keep in mind that even though everything looks perfect and this is your dream job, something like half, about half, maybe even more, uh, people leave their first job within the first two or three years. And so you make sure that uh, you have the ability to get uh, out of a contract, even if it's going to cost you uh, much of that uh, signing bonus. So have that money at the ready. Uh, excellent advice. Um, so when you went to, when you first started your job, 
uh, everybody wants to employ certain strategies to achieve financial independence, uh, 401ks, real estate, taxable investments. Uh, what, what was your main strategy for, for achieving financial independence? Well, the first few years, I was newly married and uh, went into building our dream home after a couple of years of doing locums. Um, so I was maxing out a SEP IRA. In hindsight, I would choose a, a solo 401k, individual 401k. Um, and that was... I think anywhere from forty-five thousand a year to maybe fifty thousand a year. Uh, those first five years when I was an independent contractor, uh, and I, I think the first few years that's pretty much all I did was this set. But it was you know fifty grand a year, and then I saved up enough to buy you know waterfront lot with cash and and build our home you know, with a down payment on a construction loan and that sort of thing. Um, once I get to be more settled and uh, we. You know, we had our home. We had money left over beyond the max of now it's you know, fifty five thousand into a an individual four hundred one k or SEP IRA. Uh, then I started a taxable account, and that ended up getting most of our dollars. Uh, and then today, now I'm employed and have been for the last six seven years or so. So now it's a four hundred one k, a four fifty seven b. Those get eighteen thousand now eighteen five per year. Uh, do an HSA with a high deductible health plan. So that's another seven thousand a year for a married couple with a family, and uh, and then it's taxable after that. So looking at my portfolio today, it's it's something like fifty to fifty five percent taxable investments, which are to me one of the one of the best accounts you can have if you do it in a tax efficient way. It's really really not. Uh, you know, taxable is kind of a, a misnomer. You can keep it very low tax if you do things right. Right, and I my understanding is your tax your taxable account your tax um, burden is actually very low. What, what, approximately how low is it? Well, my average uh, dividend you know yield on on the passive index funds that I own, and I own a little bit of Berkshire Hathaway stock too. It's the only individual stock I own. I like to keep my dividends low because they're taxed. So it's about 2% that is taxed. And then at what rate is that taxed? Uh, it's 15% because I'm not in the highest tax um, bracket where it's 20. And then another 3.8% once you earn over about $250,000, you pay that uh, NIIT or the uh, ACA tax. So now we're at 18.8 plus state tax. So that's another almost 10%. Uh, so I pay about 30% uh, tax on the 2% dividend I get, which is 0.6% per year. So it's pretty reasonable. And it can be lower than that. Live in a lower tax state uh, if you earn less money. And in retirement, it could be zero if your taxable income is under about $77,000, $78,000. You don't even pay uh tax at all on qualified dividends or long-term capital gains. Well, uh, on that note, so you, you did, the, you know, you mentioned in your blog, geographical arbitrage. So one strategy obviously is to live in a low, uh, a state with low taxes. Um, also the, the other advantage is you can live in a state with low cost of living. And I think you had mentioned it in, in one of your blog posts. Yeah. Yeah. Geographic arbitrage. That's, uh, the, the, the term that's been tossed around for, uh, you know, living, like you said, in a lower cost of living area, but also making a higher salary. And that's somewhat unique to healthcare, right? Because in finance, in law, in tech, you know, there, there are jobs in San Francisco and New York and, and some places that are, are highly sought after that 
costs a lot of money. So if you want to make a lot of money in those fields, you kind of need to be where the money is, right? You know, out in the Bay Area or something, or, you know, if you're in finance or law, maybe it's New York City or Boston. And, uh, and so you, you make a lot of money, but you spend a lot of money in medicine. It's a supply-demand issue. So if you live somewhere where there are fewer doctors, you can probably get paid a bit more. And those places tend to be, you know, in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt, in the South, uh, places that uh, don't cost as much to live and tend to pay more. Um, so Dr. Fawcett or Dr. Corey Fawcett, he actually lived in a town with under 25,000 people for his entire career. Yeah. And, uh, he, you know, he said there were two advantages of doing that. Number one, you could command a much higher salary when you negotiate your contract. And number two, you know, it, it was just... a better lifestyle for him and his family in the, with respect to the size and the schools and he didn't have any traffic. And it's, it's an option that I think a lot of, if you look at the data, a lot of younger physicians are ignoring. They, all of them would rather live in a city above, you know, between half a million and a million people. And they're doing it at their own, at their own peril because then they can't really negotiate a higher salary. Yeah. And that's somewhat variable too. You know, for example, here in Minnesota, I am also in a town of under 25,000 people and that's how I grew up. That's how my wife grew up. And that's what we prefer to be honest. I mean, I have lived in, I lived in Minneapolis for eight years and I know people that live, let's say in the suburbs where the pair mix is really good. They have great jobs. There's a ton of fortune 500 companies there. You know, they, they make a lot more than I do. Um, so it's not necessarily that you can't make money in a metro area, uh, but it depends where it is, and it depends on the specific job. You know, I've, I've talked to an anesthesiologist in, in New York uh, making low seven figures, believe it or not. And uh, it, it can happen, even in an expensive area. But the average income, when you look at all the data, it's always higher uh, here in the Midwest and on south and, and not so much in Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., East Coast, et cetera. Fair enough. Fair enough. In fact, yeah, and, and you make a very good point too. So when I first started, I belonged to a practice that had a very, very good payer mix. And then over the course of time, the payer mix went from very good to uh, horrible. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the sal- as a result, you know, as, as a group of clinicians, we took a giant hit to the point where we had to close our practice and then become employees mm-hmm. just, to, just to make Realities. ends meet. So yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. And that's a good point. You know, what what uh, the job you take may not be the job you have in five or 10 years. So you don't want to make too many plans based on this, you know, outside salary that's maybe, you know, 50% or 80% higher than the MGMA average or something. And I've seen jobs like that, but they may or may not be stable. Oh, I totally agree. Um, so Tanya Hester from our next life, she, she won the blog of the year, I she believe. Did. Right? Yep. I know Tanya. <laughs> And uh, anyway, she wrote a post recently that said, financial independence doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It just means that your job needs you more than you need them. Um, lately, people have been even blogging about it, calling you FU money. Um, so how does, achieve, how does achieving financial independence change your leverage in, uh, with respect to your job? Yeah, Tanya said it well, right? Um, you know, the job needs you more than you need the job. And so, you know, when you're you're, you know, BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement is, is walking away and maybe taking an extended vacation or uh, pursuing some passion project you've had on the back burner for a long time. If that's the worst thing that happens, you know, you, you can say no to a lot of things. You can make uh, demands you might not otherwise even consider making. And uh, certainly a better way to have a good, good chance to get what you're looking for in that negotiation. Um, you know, one way it's, it's helped me 
I had been thinking it would be really nice to work part-time, but in a group of five docs, I just didn't see how that would be feasible unless one of them was willing to work half-time with me and we'd hire another doc. But nobody was really at that point. They are all pretty hungry uh, and you know, maybe even still paying off those student loans after a number of years. So I just casually brought it up uh, to one of my partners and said, you know, I wouldn't mind going in part-time sooner than maybe anyone's ready to, to share that job with me. And he said, well, you know, I've been thinking about this because this wasn't the first time I had mentioned that. And he said, you know, I mean, if we just reach work 10% more, which is very doable, and that would open up, you know, 40% of your schedule. I said, yeah, what, wouldn't it? Let's, let's do that. So uh, after uh, you know, talking with everyone and then administration signing off on it, I've been working a, a 0.6 FTE schedule for about a year, and my partners have been working 1.1. And as far as I can tell, everybody's been pretty happy with that arrangement. That, talk about a win-win. So, you know, like you mentioned, there are lots of people out there who really want to work harder, but they're limited because, you know, maybe the way the, the pie is divided up. Um, the same thing's happening in my in my job. I have a brand new grad who wants to work every weekend and every night, but he just can't because everybody's sharing the p- part of the pie. So, I you know, I think what you've done is, is incredible in that you've, you know, step back so that somebody who wants it can take yeah can take over. a lot of groups have that built in we're small enough that it hadn't really been a consideration before but you know you certainly hear about people uh, selling their call in other words saying you can have it and you link the money i don't need it <laughs> i don't need the work i don't need the money uh larger groups a lot are set up that way where you can kind of work anywhere from 0. 0.5 to 1.5 by just flipping the schedule around but uh yeah, it wasn't that way here and and uh you know i don't know that i would have just said if I can't do this, I'm out. <laughs> but um, knowing that I would have that option if I really chose that, you know, the nuclear option, uh, it was there and it wouldn't have affected me financially, you know, in terms of being able to live the life I'm living and support my family. Well, you know, you mentioned earlier that you'd started uh, doing locums when you, as your first job that transitioned into your first permanent job. Um, I think what a lot of physicians are doing now who are in the situation that you were in, uh, they don't want to, you know, put too much pressure on their partners, they give their group sufficient time to get a replacement and then they go start doing locums. Uh, did you ever consider doing that? Um, yeah, locums was a great way to start my career. I got to try out all these different practice styles um, and really learn what what worked for me and what didn't and, and what I enjoyed the most. And so um, I'm glad I did it then. I thought about doing it at the end of my career as well, but Given where we're at and you know the age of my kids and all that, I don't know that I I want or need to be scheduling my life and our travels around different locums gigs. So I certainly thought about it, and I thought maybe I would work until the kids were out of the house, and then our you know twilight years of my career might be spent uh, traveling the country and doing locums in my fifties. But uh, the way the finances have worked out and. Uh, the way I've discovered this whole financial independence movement, I've decided that I'm not going to work until I'm in my fifties. Now, congratulations. That's, that's incredible. Um, so you, I'm, are you thinking you're going to be done next year approximately? Yep. Yep. So we hired someone who actually trained in the same residency program that I did, who is from this small town where I am. Uh, and he will be graduating June 30th and moving up here right then. So once he's here and settled and good to go independently, because we only have one doc in each facility at a time, uh, it's maybe it's a little bit of a tricky job to just jump into from residency, which is a very different 
sort of model. Uh, we're supervising, you know, three or four nurse anesthetists at a time, and we have no other doc, you know, anesthesiologist that is on site to to confer with. So I'll stick around probably four, six, eight weeks, uh, whatever is deemed uh, necessary until he's up to speed and good to go on his own. Excellent. Um, so many feel that medicine is a calling. And uh, I know you, one of the articles you had written, uh, you were criticized for retiring early um, due to the fact that, you know, people in, in the comments felt like you were not serving the needs of the public. Um, and it's, it's something that I've kind of been thinking about quite a bit myself. Um, and I, I'm just curious, what, what's your opinion on all that? Well, as far as it being a calling, you know, I wish I could say it, it, it was my calling. I think it's been a great job I've had well, for 12 or 13 years, a good career. I've been happy with it and get to do uh, really uh, helpful things for people. I also get paid to do that. It's a, it's an exchange with society. You know, I, I uh, do my anesthesia job and I get compensated well to do it. I didn't sign on to any particular contract to do it for X number of years. Um, there are people that do, you know, for example, if you have the military pay your way, then you owe them four years. And I think absolutely people that do that ought to honor that commitment. Uh, there are also similar loan forgiveness programs for working in rural areas. And I was not part of one of those, although in hindsight, I probably should have looked at those a little more closely because I do prefer living in, in rural areas that might've had programs available to me. Um, so yeah, I think you should owe up to anything that you sign on the dotted line and, and do what is required. Um, that's not the case uh, in, you know, and for most of us who are, are just out here practicing, uh, we do have free will. And, uh, you know, if you start saying, oh, anyone that took, you know, government money to help fund their education should work a full career, well, no, no one's going to retire unless they started in private preschool, kindergarten, all the way through, never, never took a single penny for their education at any point. But, you know, darn near everyone, at least everyone I know, has at some point. And so somehow this is seems to be an argument for physicians, but not people in other fields who might have attended public schools at some point. Uh, and I, I just think, you know, OK, how, how much is enough? At what age is it OK to retire? Is it ever OK to work part time or should you work like that? young doc in your practice every weekend because you're can and you're capable and you could if you you know wanted to uh, you know uh, how at what point is it enough i don't know oh i totally agree um and you know so i guess the criticism comes from you know people would argue oh you've only worked 10 years you know whereas if you look at it, generations before us especially the baby boomers many of them work till they die many of them work over 40 40 years etc um, so recently it's, you know, I was thinking about this and I've started just number crunching, um, or adding up all the hours that we, that we put in to, to, to create our career. And if you added medical school, which is obviously, you know, you could have started earning money right out of college, but you didn't, you went to medical school, you do four years of residency, and then you work nine years at the job. And if you average in the medical school, say, I don't know, 60 to 80 hours a week. Residency is 80 hours a week. And the job is about a minimum of 60 hours a week. I calculated it up to, uh, it's about, uh, let's see, 30, 40,000 hours. And if you divide that by uh, 2080, you get 25 yeah, years. Yeah, it starts to look like a full so career, even, doesn't it? Yeah, even with you, and that doesn't even include call. So I think even with your career, 
you've more than adequately put in the hours if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, I'm in my 13th year. I mean, I could do it another 13 years, but uh, I, I do have autonomy, free will, and uh, it's up to me to choose what's best for uh, my family and I. So, yeah, I, I don't feel any any strong um, sense that I owe society uh, more than, than I have given. Totally agree. Uh, Robert Dargozzi, he's the, uh, the physician... Uh, the physician investor, and he he has he coined a term called "doctors are now professional students." Um, and so, you know, it's not the money anymore, but it's the amount of time it takes to want to uh, that you have to invest just to get into medicine. So, you have to go into debt, you have to give up all your free time when you're young, and then by the time you get out, then you have to deal with the bureaucracy of of the of you know modern medicine. Um, and now add to that this whole NYU endowment where physicians get to go to medicine, mm-hmm. uh, get to potentially get a free medical school uh, tuition. Uh, then, then I have a feeling society is going to put even more pressure on us to potentially uh, like continue our careers indefinitely. Yeah, you, know, you, you gave me an idea. You know, we hear about delayed gratification quite often with our careers. We talk about delayed gratification, and that's usually used in the context that we don't have money and we can't spend money until we're in our thirties. And that's when people sometimes spend more than they ought to, and then end up, you know, in debt indefinitely. But we also have delayed gratification in terms of just slowing down and enjoying life and having time to do the things that we want to do outside of medicine. Uh, And so I, I feel like in some ways I've been delaying that gratification for quite a long time. Yeah. And uh, as, as far as what we owe, it's really what we agree to. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and, and there's no, you know, there, there, there's no sense in holding, you know, a mother or father who wants to be home with their children to any you know, 40 year career like like some people might have done in the past. That was their choice. And we get to make our own choices. I totally agree. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is hope is not a strategy. Uh, in the era of greater administrative burden and uh, record burnout, how can we use FI to uh, help to reduce or change this trend? Yeah, that's tricky. You know, the the one thing that I've been talking about that does give us better bargaining power, it also gives us the power to walk away and to quit. Um, and some people will choose to do that. Um, one thing in the last question you talked about is, you know, how, um, you know, I'm walking away and not going to be helping people anymore. Um but I, I'm not saying that I am just a retired person, right? I'm saying I'm retiring to do something different, which is to continue this this blogging and this website where I actually do help, like you said, thousands of people on a, on a regular basis. And so in, in my job, I can only help three or four people at a time. Um, with a website, I can help thousands of people at a time. And so I, I do have that to hold on to. Um, in terms of the whole the herb burnout situation, I mean, we certainly do need some people to, to stay and fight. You know, there's the whole... Um, anti-MOC movement and uh, you know alternative board the MBPAS. Uh, you've got people doing direct primary care and concierge care and, and all these things that are a little bit um, outside of the you know quote unquote mainstream. And I think that's great. You know I don't have really the bandwidth, the time to, to devote to these different causes, but I, I like that trend to do something that uh, isn't just kind of towing the party line and, and doing what the AMA says we need to do and what the uh, board of medical specialties says we need to do, uh, fighting back a bit. And so, you know, I think becoming less reliant on all these entities that, uh, 
say we are allowed to practice and we can have these privileges and, and finding alternate ways to practice are certainly a step in the right direction. I totally agree. I think with, uh, if if your, if your blog continues to grow and you continue to expand the number of physicians that you help and they in turn achieve their own financial independence, then they'll have more, you know, leverage to not be subjected to all, to these administrative burdens and these regulatory burdens that, that are placed upon them. So I would argue that you're going to, in, in general, I think you're going to be one of the biggest proponents for helping these people fight the, 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 the in an indirect fight. way. That's I suppose that is, uh, that is true. There's some truth to that. And that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I got a bonus question. The stock market is, uh, it's correcting. And uh, no sooner than it starts correcting, people on Twitter are panicking, especially especially the younger kids who haven't seen the 2001, the 2007, and uh, the other corrections in the past. So uh, what advice do you have for them? Stay the course. You know, I don't know the overall direction. We lost 6 or 7% last week, bounced back a little bit yesterday. I try not to pay that much close attention. But like you say, if you're on Twitter, you're going to see it. I, um, you know, I was, I started my practice in 2006 and started putting, you know, about 50,000 a year into the stock market. And I saw that money that I put in, in the fall of 2006, you know, get cut by half, but I just kept putting money in because I could look at the trend going back to, you know, the early 1900s that was just logarithmically up, 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 and have faith that the future will look something a little bit like the past. You are buying into companies that produce actual products and own actual factories and have millions of employees. You know, the stock market isn't just this nebulous thing. It's ownership in, in businesses that are, are doing uh, things all over the place and making products that we use every day. So my, yeah, my advice is to have some kind of a written plan whether it's something you write out and call it an investor policy statement or just uh, an asset allocation that says I will maintain 80% stocks and 10% bonds and 10% real estate and, and just stick to that and ignore what happens on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. Um, so that's that's what I've done uh, in my career. I've, I was invested a little bit back in 2000, just a little IRA. I started when I worked at the grocery store and that kind of thing as a kid, but um, I did see my money lose money and then come back. I saw it come back. And then in 2006, you know, I saw it all go down to the nader in march of 09 and i saw it all come back and so have faith that that will happen again and if it doesn't have we're, we've got bigger problems than just our little investment accounts you know more of a societal breakdown problem exactly I, I i think i attended the asa in 2009 and i attended a financial summit or you know it was a kind of an all-day lecture that you it was an optional lecture and uh it was right at we were at minus forty three percent, and all the I'd say half the people there there must have been a hundred people sitting there, and I had spoken to I don't know how maybe ten or twenty, and they all sold everything at the bottom, and so the speaker heard of this and he jumped up and said, "God, for the love of Bye God, now. please <laughs> don't yeah don't sell don't yeah, sell." Yeah. He's like I said, like, "I'm begging you," I said, I "Beg you, do not sell," and so all the you know and, and these physicians were just so skeptical. And, uh, you know, I heeded his advice. I, I totally, uh, I, you know, I said, okay, maybe now's a good time to buy. What's uh, fascinating about 2009, it was just on the heels of the year, you know, 2000, 2001, you know, so we had just seen this happen, right? I mean, we had recent history, you know, it's only happened twice in the exactly. last 
80 years, you know, you know, since the, the Great Depression that we saw stocks plummet by that much. Um, the early 70s were pretty rough, too, with hyperinflation. But but uh, but you have the recent history of a big nosedive and knowing that uh, uh, history repeated itself again with a bounce back. So uh, I think it was. Yeah. But but emotions are hard to control. You know, you can you can logically say very much. I so. will continue to invest when the market drops 30 to 50 percent. But when that happens and your you know, your two million dollars becomes point nine or one point two. Uh, that's that's uh, cause for concern, but if you recognize that as a buying opportunity, you know, stick with it. That you'll come out ahead in the end. I totally agree. Well, great. Um, this has been. Oh yeah. So, final question: um, What bit of negotiation advice would you give a millennial coming out into residence? You know, just graduating from residency today. Um, that, that would impact them the most in, in their careers. And just know your value, you know, and, and you may not know that intuitively and you may have to ask around, you know, there are thousands of physicians doing the same thing that you're doing, interviewing and applying for their first job. And there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of physicians actually that have done this before. And so you know, you're not on an island. You, you've got you've got people out there. You can ask questions. You know, you've got places like the White Coat Investor Forum where you can ask a question anonymously. You've got Facebook groups. Um, you know, I've got one physicians on fire. There's you know a number of others that are physician only, and you can kind of feel like you're in a, a protected space and ask those questions. What do you think about this contract? There are contract review services that will look them over for you and maybe even negotiate on your behalf. And so, just know your worth. If you don't. Try to figure it out before you just sign the boilerplate contract out there. Excellent. Well, hey, I really appreciate it. What's uh, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Uh, you can go to my website, which is called Physician on Fire, but uh, just type in P-O Fire, P-O-F-I-R-E dot com. You can find me there. I'm on uh, Twitter at Physician on Fire, Facebook, uh, same thing. So uh, Google anything like that and you'll find me quite easily. Excellent. Hey, well, hey, Leaf, I really appreciate it. Um, I think this podcast hopefully will help uh, many of these, the, the same people that we've been talking about this whole time, the residents, um, specifically people who, even, even if you're halfway through your career, I, I hope this will help them um, get some traction in, uh, in their ability to not only understand finance, but to negotiate their, their way through. Yes. And uh, it was a pleasure to meet you at FinCon just a few weeks ago. And it's uh, been great talking to you once again. Thanks for the invite. Uh, thank you so much. Well, that's the end of our show. I'd like once again to thank Leaf, the physician on fire, for uh, participating in this podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Leaf, head over to thephysicianonfire.com. If you are, would like to leave uh, some comments and or get the show notes, head over to thephysiciannegotiator.com. And please subscribe if you'd like to get more content. Um, I'm going to be having a weekly show. We're going to get more physician influencers uh, more legal professionals who will help you negotiate your best deal in medicine. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the Physician Negotiator podcast. For show notes and other resources, please visit thephysiciannegotiator.com.